Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. This week we will be returning to our series, The Life of Jesus, as our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, delivers a message about what it means to be salt and light in this world. You can follow along with the message in Matthew 5, 1-16 or by using the YouVersion Bible app. You can also find weekly message resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood Church app. Let it be Jesus in your life. How would you answer that question? Thank you. Today we continue our series, The Life of Jesus. You have your books. They're only five bucks. And if you don't have it, David will pay, pay it for you. Spend some time. Spend some time. Even on the days you don't feel very spiritual. Today's message is called Exercising Influence. You can take your message guide, and there's the outline on the first two panels. On top of the outline is this verse. This is John 17, which is Jesus, what we call high priestly prayer. And he's praying this, and he said, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them, referring to his disciples, but through his disciples to us, into the world. After Jesus ascended, he left them behind. He's left us behind two centuries later, 2,000 years later, I mean, two millennia later. But he didn't leave us aimless. He left us with a, a purpose, a very specific purpose and an important task to accomplish. You see, he commissioned them and us to avoid reflecting the world. Not become part of the world. Rather, to influence the world. Be in the world, not of it. You can't influence anything or anyone if you're exactly like it. You have to be distinct. You have to be different to exercise influence. So here's the opening question. Do you fit in too well in our culture? Too well. So the question for each of us today, how can I be spiritually influential? Well, first you must be saved. You must be born again. But you also have to be equipped with the right attitudes. Christian character creates spiritual influence. We're looking at reading 54 today, which is one of the readings for this week. You have a couple of longer readings this week because you're reading the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew and you'll read all of that in one day. But if you have to spread it out, that's okay. We understand. But you'll read the Matthew portion, Sermon on the Mount, one day. You read the Luke portion, which is called the Sermon on the Plain, another day. So try to hang with it. Spend some of that time every day. Get your mind started, focused on the right thing. Some days you won't feel like it. Go ahead, persevere. Jesus, remember, grew up in what town? 
Nazareth. But they got angry with him because he said he wasn't going to heal them all. So they were going to throw him off of a hill. Now he passed through them. So it shows his supernatural nature. If he doesn't, if it's not the right thing, he just got away from them. And he moved to a nearby village, Capernaum. Well, Capernaum's a beautiful little small town that sat right on the Sea of Galilee. And it was elevated. There was right beside, outside the city, there was a hillside that tapered all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful scene. You see a scene um, they've shown you. And he began to instruct primarily his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount was aimed to his disciples, which means learners. But a large crowd had gathered. So what he was teaching applied to some of them as well. The ones that really wanted to hear from him. A lot came because they'd heard about miracles. They wanted to be healed. But some wanted to know who is this man and what is he teaching? But the Sermon on the Mount instructs Jesus' followers how to live as citizens, not of earth, but of heaven. While residing on earth. Now, he began the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is a list of, you can see that, that's a picture of the um, Sea of Galilee. It really is that beautiful. It's a freshwater lake, huge lake. And these eight character traits or attitudes will set us apart from this world, which allows us, enables us to then have an impact to inspire and an influence. So we look on page 65, the middle of the page, and it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. But the Beatitudes, let me give you this list first. We'll start there first. You see it, it begins on 64. And it says, here's the list. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. But then look at these. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you. Say every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Be glad and rejoice for great is your reward in heaven. So see, when you possess these character traits, only then are you equipped to affect the lives of others for Christ. And as we do, we also receive the benefit of the blessing from God. Now, it doesn't mean giddy with happiness, but it does mean a deep abiding joy that comes from being rightly related to God. Because you see, if you live with those attributes, you will be mistreated. But even in the mistreatment, there's confirmation that you're living the way God wants you to if you're persecuted for righteousness sake. So we're gonna examine our spiritual influence using two metaphors that Jesus used. What are they? 
Salt and light. So first, I influence others as the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. In other words, there's not a lot of salt. You are the salt of this earth. Now, in Jesus' time, the main source of salt in Israel was found in the extensive deposits near the Dead Sea. Salt, you see, was harvested by pouring seawater into pits or rock crevices and then letting the sun evaporate the water, leaving salt crystals. He continues. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Now, strictly speaking, salt, what is salt? Sodium chloride. Okay, don't y'all help him. And what is the chemical symbol? NACL. Very good. Why don't you now recite the whole periodic table for us? Don't y'all remember that dreaded periodic table? But the salt that was used by the people of Jesus' time wasn't refined like salt is today. So it contained, yes, salt, but also all kinds of foreign substances, minerals and other impurities. I can tell you this, the Dead Sea is not a pleasant place. The Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee drains by way of the Jordan River into the Dead Sea, just about the whole length of the country of Israel. But the Dead Sea has no outlet. And the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. So what happens is the sun evaporates the water. Well, considering over all the millennia that the, that the Jordan River has been flowing in, and it just has gotten denser and denser and denser and denser. In fact, in the Dead Sea, you can stand up vertically when you're in water over your head and you will not sink. I don't mean you can walk on the surface, but about here, you'll, you'll just balance even if you're standing vertically. You, you can't really dive down. You can sit in it. But it's so dense, there's nothing living in it. Because it's so salty, it has so many minerals, so many impurities. I mean, they bag it up and sell it for skin. I'm thinking, the stuff that'll corrode your eyes is so good for your skin. But something, I'm a little too logical for some of that stuff. But (laughs) since salt is highly soluble, it's easily washed out when it gets wet, disappears. But in this case, this unrefined salt, when it got wet, the sodium chloride, the NaCl, would actually wash out of it, but it would leave a white substance, mostly gypsum, but whatever other minerals were involved and other substances. And what would remain still looked like salt. And it was very likely referred to as salt but it didn't taste like salt. And it didn't have any of the properties of salt 
so it would be thrown out. Are you a Christian or do you look like a Christian? Now, like true salt, if you're, if you're ever truly saved, you cannot lose that salvation. Because we're not saved by works. We're saved by the grace of God. It's something he did for you then to you. So if you're once truly born again, you can't lose that. But you can become so contaminated by sin and foreign substances that come from worldliness that you can lose your saltiness. And you will have absolutely no influence. You'll become useless to God and to people. In fact, as this text says, it may be time for you to just be thrown out and walked on. So let's consider some characteristics of salt. Now y'all are trekking with me, right? See, in this culture, we make the assumption we're saved and we stop looking in the mirror to see, do I possess this character? And then when people do all kinds of things and say all kinds of crazy things, we think, what's going on here? You don't make an assumption there's salvation where there's no behavior, behavior that looks like salvation. You see what I'm saying? You're not saved till you're saved. The problem is in the South, unless you're wearing a headpiece like a Muslim, you're considered a Christian. Unless you declare you're an atheist, oh, you're a Christian. You're American. That doesn't make any sense. That's not scriptural teaching at all. So let's consider some characteristics of salt so we can retain our usefulness. First, salt prevents decay. No refrigerators, obviously, in Jesus' day. So they preserved meat, primarily meat, but food, how? Rub salt into it. Y'all know that. That's where country ham gets its taste. But the fishermen would rub salt into the fish, for example, to preserve it, to retard the growth of bacteria. Now, salt was also used as an antiseptic, antiseptic for the same reason. It limited the growth of bacteria. We act as salt in our society when we slow down the decay of our culture by restraining sin. But in order to restrain sin, you have to have biblical integrity and moral conviction if you're going to resist the moral decline in our culture. I mean, look at our culture. Is, our culture, is the morality of our culture declining or improving? So what does that say about the function of all the salt that's been left here? Because of the purity of our lives, our mere presence should limit the unkind, unjust, immoral, or even evil behaviors of others. So what effect do you have on folks at work? 
Do people ever apologize to you for cursing? They do that to me a lot. Oh, pastor, I'm sorry. I'm thinking, well, I know that word. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? It's not wrong to be salty and it's not wrong to make people uncomfortable. Here's an object lesson. Who knows somebody that's just really nasty? I can't use any other word but that. That's my mother's word. Don't you act nasty. Well, how comfortable is that nasty man or woman, and you know who I'm talking about, around you? Because if that person is very comfortable around you, you've lost your salt. Now, we must not only live godly lives, sometimes we have to deliberately act and intervene intentionally. Yes, but always in a Christ-like way. Look at Romans 12, 9. Don't pretend to love others. That's lip service. Really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. How do you love? See, we th- unfortunately, we think, oh, I just love you. Well, let me see you stand in front of the oncoming train for that person. That's love. You know, some of us don't even really much love our friends, even our kids. You know why? Because we just want them, that we need them to care like us so much that we will never say, no, no, I love you so much. I'm willing for you to dislike me because I'm going to do everything I possibly can to present, prevent you damaging yourself. That's why I would tell you, we've, we've hired some wonderful men to lead these ministries. But folks, if you want some salt shaken out on them, your kids, you have to bring them. Some of you need to volunteer. Because I'm going to tell you this, if you just say, well, my kid doesn't want to go, I don't, and I can't, what can I do? When I get that, I'll say, you feed them, you clothe them, you ever wash their clothes, you, you cut it all out. They're telling you no, you tell them no. Your house, your rules. Your bed, your rules. You hear me? And you think, well, I can't be that cruel. No, no, that's not being cruel. See, that's being loving. Because if you don't influence your child when he or she is young, that child will break your heart when he's out of your house. I've been here. I don't want y'all to, no, don't clap at that. Do it, do it. Don't clap for me. I don't want to be demonstrative. I want you to get this in your soul. You know, clapping can keep you from listening. I want you to hear this in your core. I've been here now for almost 24 years and I've seen some heartbreaking things. I've seen kids who did not have the character to be allowed to go off to school. And I've asked parents, don't send your child off to school. The drugs, the sex, the... And then when they corrupt their lives. You see my point? This is a battle. This is a battle. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. You know what? I'm not going to let this culture, and I didn't let this culture 
raise my kids and hold tightly. That sounds like effort to me, doesn't it you? Hold tightly to what is good. Sometimes you hold tightly to people that you know are headed in the wrong direction. You know your kid's going the wrong, going out to get into something, you stand in the doorway. You're not going. You take the keys. You flatten the tires. <laughs> if I'm lying, I'm dying. I mean, you don't. Now, I'm not saying be cruel. You see what I'm saying? But don't count on your kids to love your shaping of their character. You do it out of love. Maybe they'll love you back when they're 35. You, you hear me? Y'all hear me on this? Because our culture is all out of control and it's largely because of very weak parenting and Christians not being salty even in their own houses. We do this with compassion. We do it with concern. We do it motivated by love. I'm not saying be critical and condemning. That doesn't cause anyone to improve. You do it this way, Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speak the truth in love. You do it lovingly, but you speak the truth. And as you do, you grow to be more like Christ, who is the head of the church. So do you keep silent so you won't offend anyone? Or do you speak up? It's okay for your kid to, turn, to tune you out. You see what I'm saying? If your child never tunes you out, are you doing any directing? You see my point? Salt also produces flavor. Who thinks salt is tasty? Oh, come on. Y'all have watched too much. Uh, who dislikes pizza? I know, well, it's not, it's not clean. No, it's not clean, but it's good. How many of you, how about this, maybe I can get some cooperation. How many of you have been put on a low-sodium diet by your doctor? Come on, let me get, let's see some hands, let's see some honesty. Well, how's that working for you? I'm not telling you to disobey your doctor. My doctor's sitting in here. Don't disobey but I want you to know I have sympathy for you. Y'all know this. Y'all, you ever had anybody say, you know, these rice cakes are really good. <laughs> yeah, to someone who snacks on those styrofoam peanuts from the packing crate. <laughs> but they're really not bad with peanut butter. Peanut butter has salt. You know, that, I mean, I saw this advertised. It's amazing. Salt-free saltines. <laughs> if you buy that, they might as well put fool over your head. <laughs> Just eat the cardboard box. Lord, you know, I mean, I, I, I have eaten some health food in my day. Look at my figure. But I'm going to tell you, they always tell you like this. This is Leanne. Don't tell her I said this, but... It's really pretty good. But you know what that means? It's really pretty good because your expectation is that it will be awful. <laughs> I mean, in any abstra I mean, absolute terms, it is not good. 
but y'all go on and be whatever. I mean, you know, eat all the good food. Give me the monosaturated fats. But, but the point is, we can agree on this, I think. Food without salt is bland. I mean, it's, it's dull. It, it may be healthy, but it's not real satisfying. I mean, it prolongs life. But life without Christ is bland. It's dull. It's boring. And you say, well, I like the wildlife. Well, you can pursue entertainment and pleasure, and it is enjoyable and it's exciting for a while, but you will tire of those things. I mean, think about it. There was something you did that was the most exciting thing you'd ever done. By the third time, you're looking around for something different. The world's distractions dim with repetition. So it requires an ever-expanding variety of ever-more-extreme experiences to create the same level of excitement. See, here's the problem. What you're striving for is contentment. There's something missing you're trying to fill. But here's the problem. You're a tripartite being, body, soul, and spirit. If you just stimulate the body, you can't experience lasting, durable contentment. Because contentment has to be involving the emotional and the spiritual. In fact, the emotional and the spiritual are more fundamental to contentment, true contentment, than is the body. So you're not in essence, your body is not who you are. The essence of who you are is soul. And you've received the breath of life, that's the spirit. Lasting satisfaction and contentment in life is only found in Jesus Christ. Look at this, 1 Peter 2. Certainly you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, Christians should add the rich taste of Jesus to our culture. If we possess Christ-like character. He left. He left you to be the salt. How salty are you? We're the means of God's, not only we're God's presence, but we're also God's blessing in this world. Did you know that? So who are you blessing? Even to unbelievers. Look at Philippians. Do everything, it says, readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted. Pure. A breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. And provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. This isn't a sweet tasting world today. But see, if you possess the spirit of God, if you possess the, be, the beatitudes, then, then another way of saying that is you possess fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. And the fruit of the spirit flavors 
this bitter world. But are you fruitful? Salt also produces thirst. Salt makes you thirsty. That's why they give those snacks away at bars. Y'all thought they were just being generous. No, they're setting you up. When you ingest salt, your body becomes thirsty, trying to dilute the salt, trying to bring you back into balance. Salt in your digestive system, salt in your bloodstream. Well, the attractiveness of our lives should make others thirsty for what we have. That's right. Our effect should be to cause others to crave living water. That only Christ supplies and the only substance that will really satisfy their thirst. That's the story of the woman at the well of a few weeks ago, John 4. You know, Evan told me afterwards, she said, well, that phrase you use, thirsty, is urban slang for just a, you know, like a person that's just just lusting after the world. They're thirsty. And I said, well, good. I didn't even know it was urban slang, but it fits perfectly. You know what? We live in a thirsty world. People are after all, I mean, sex and drugs and popularity. I need to be a celebrity. I mean, look, people will make fools of themselves to get on television for 15 minutes. What's missing? But the only true satisfaction, contentment, this world can offer comes from Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 Quietly trust yourself to Christ your Lord. And if anybody asks you why you believe as you do, be ready to tell him. And do so in a gentle and respectful way. Two questions here. If someone asks you, are you ready to answer? But another question is anybody asking? Because if they don't see anything different, why would they ask? Now, I'm not saying everybody in the office is going to line up at your desk, but I'll tell you this. Someone will catch you in the break room, and they may even lower their voice. But when they're in trouble, when they're tormented, when their marriage is breaking up, when their kids have gone crazy, they know not to ask Mr. Nasty Big Mouth. They know to look for the person who has the savor of Christ. Do you have it? Do you have it? The way we live and love our spouses, the way we parent our children, the way we treat our friends and conduct our businesses. If we're doing all these things in a Christ-like, God-honoring, spirit-directed way will cause people to ask the secret of our satisfaction in life. You can raise godly children who will resist the culture, but you will not do it easily. And you will not do it effortlessly. You'll only do it tenaciously. Never, never taking your hand away from the plow. I also influence, influence others as the light of the world. Matthew 5 again, 14. 
You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. The this, this city was likely the town Sephorus. And right there uh, beside Capernaum where the hill is, this, where the Sermon on the Mount was likely taught, there was a, a, there was a town Sephorus up on the hill. And so when, you know, the lights were lit and the fireplaces and all were lit, and it would be seen at night. It wasn't far away. It was up on the top of a, of a hill. Because light will always pierce darkness. Light always defeats darkness. But this continues, says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket or some translations under a bowl or under a bushel, but rather on a lamp stand and it gives light to, the, to all who are in the house. Now, Jesus came as the light of the world. The light was not in the world. See, education doesn't produce light. Today, we've had more education, and now you've got this wonderful internet. And because of all this internet, and people shouting at each other, and I'm declaring this, and I'm, we are less sure of more things today than we were 20 years ago. Education doesn't produce morality or even wisdom. Jesus came as the light of the world. John 9, 5. And he remained the light of the world during his lifetime until he ascended. Acts 1, 9 through 11. But he's referring to the typical light that people had. I've got a replica of an ancient light. This, this little lamp, obviously made of clay. But this is what the people had in their homes. This is a uh, replica of a Herodian lamp it's referred to as. Obviously a reference to King Herod. And they used them in Judea from about 50 BC to about 70 AD. Now it only held a few ounces of oil, olive oil, and it would burn for two or three hours. But this would be the only light they had in the house. And if you've ever been anywhere where there are no street lights, no lights of any kind, you know how dark it can be. They had to go to the bathroom. They had to leave the house. That's all they had. So since the house was illuminated, they were usually one-room houses or at most a couple of rooms. So they would put this up on a stand. I've got it on this bench. So you can see why it's important. Put it up high so people can see. At least they can get a point of reference of how to navigate through the house. But then he says, why would you cover it? I have another ancient replica here from a, a Jewish merchant named Sam Walton. <laughs> but why would you cover your light? It would serve no purpose. In fact, after just a few seconds under there, the light would completely go out. Has your light gone out? See, when Jesus left, those who had experienced him were ignited. That's what being born again is. It's being ignited by his spirit. And then 
after being ignited, you become the light of this world. But some of us aren't the light of our house. And we're supposed to be the light of the whole house, community, state, country, world. I don't have to debate with you that this world and this country is ever darkening, do I? I don't have to make that point, do I? Because we're not shining. We're scared to offend. It might cause us to be persecuted. Yeah, you're promised that. But that's your purpose in life. You didn't come for yourself. You were sent for him. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9 say this. You're the light because once you were full of darkness, but now you have light that comes from the Lord. You don't generate it yourself. You receive it. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. So what's coming out of your life? If what's coming out of your life is not good, right, or true, it's coming from somewhere else. If we're living in disobedience, we're covering up that flame. We're concealing. If you're, even if you're truly, we're ignited at some point, you're concealing the light of your faith. You're not burning for Christ so others can see. And Jesus continued in the same way, he said. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not to you. Because they'll know it's not about you. And the word, the word good doesn't mean just some kind of, you know, proper behavior. It's, it's a word, kalos, which in the Greek, which means beautiful. Attractive appearance. In other words, if you're working as Christ's ambassador, what comes out of you is inexplicable humanly. It has to be from God. You see the difference? See, you know what the call is? If you said, give me, give me, tell me what I'm to live for. A young man said this morning, I don't know what my purpose in life is. I said, I got your purpose. I can tell you every one of your purposes. Y'all want to know? It's not going to take me long. I don't have to meet with each one of you. We all have the same purpose. Glorify God with your life. You have one purpose. Glorify God with your life. Everything you do fits into that category, doesn't it? Give me an exception. Everything you do is to glorify God with your life. That's the supreme calling of your life. To cause others to see him, not you. You know, th this is a crazy culture where we have Christian celebrities. It, to me, that is the most ludicrous thing I can imagine. You've got these famous preachers, famous vocalists, famous musicians, and people just adore them. How can you worship anybody when there's a Christ? That doesn't make any sense because you have Christ and then all the rest of us. Our calling is to cause others to see Christ and to praise him as the source of, for the good we are doing. Which means you have to be doing good that can't be explained humanly. That means you have to be sacrificial with yourself. 
so that people go, gosh, can you believe how that guy lives? He gives away what he has. He spends his time helping people that'll never repay him. Does your life look like that? See, as long as we just act like everybody else, but we believe we have a pass into heaven, who's interested in that? Light produces first illumination. Our culture, as you know, doesn't condemn most moral sin. It does condemn sin, um, this culture does, uh, like mistreatment of children or rape, for example. But there aren't many other things, are there, that our culture roundly, consistently condemns. In fact, sin in our culture is overlooked, excused, even justified as normal. And anyone that points out that certain behaviors are wrong, are biblically wrong, are accused of being judgmental. Today, good is evil and evil is good in pop culture. But don't you see, we should expect that to be. As followers of Jesus Christ, our lives should shine a light into a darkened world. Our lives, as well as our words, should illuminate what is wrong that might cause conviction in people's lives. Look at this from Ephesians 5. Learn as you go along what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless pleasures of evil and darkness. Instead, rebuke and expose them. It would be shameful even to mention here those, those pleasures of darkness that the ungodly do. But when you expose them, the light shines in upon their sin and shows it up. And when they see how wrong they really are, some of them might even become children of light. See, a gospel that doesn't confront sin is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel of don't you want to go to heaven is not the gospel. We're talking about living in the kingdom of God. And exposure of sin is often the first step toward salvation. Because see, we have to see our true selves. We have to, which, which if I see myself and all my selfishness, then that reveals my need for forgiveness. Which is what then causes us to repent. You know what the word repent means? Think after. Metanoia. In other words, regret. In other words, saying, hmm, I did this, but now I'm thinking afterward with some illumination and I'm not thinking the same anymore. In fact, I'm not living. Because you know what? However you're living is what you're believing. You don't live inconsistently with your beliefs. Never. Jesus came to die for deadly sin, not to overlook our indulging in it. Our lives must be different, distinctively holy for our lights to shine. Or else who can see a difference in us that reveals disobedience? See, we're so scared, oh, I don't mean to offend you. Then you're not light. You think light always offends darkness? Light always drives it out. Well, aren't there some exceptions to that? None. None. 
But here's a warning. Our motive must be love. Doesn't mean be weak. But our motive must be love and our methods must be gentle. Here's the thing. The person with the truth doesn't have to shout. In fact, the loudest person in the room and the loudest voice in an argument is the one who's wrong. You can say truth softly and it cuts through the confusion. You see what I'm saying? God then empowers it by the Spirit. Does the holiness of your life not, not your arrogance, the holiness of your life caused discomfort in disobedient people. Because if it, they're not uncomfortable around you, there's something missing in who? Me. Light also provides insight. I believe that every person wants to live a meaningful life of significant purpose. Every person, I believe that. I believe every person in their core desires rich, intimate relationships with others. Completely believe, believe that. But I also don't believe we just naturally know what's wrong with our lives or our relationships. All of our behaviors, result, regardless of how destructive or bizarre they are, seem right. Do you know that? Now point to someone who you know really behaves bizarrely. Don't do that. Don't do, that was. But I want you to understand this. Now don't miss this. Every person acts normally. Every person does what's right always according to what they believe. They could say, well, that's not like me. It's just like you. You understand? But the reason that what we do looks ridiculous and it's even destructive, but it seems right is because we have this distorted, self-centered perspective that's caused by deep, unseen wounds. We need to see them and have God's Spirit change those beliefs. That's what transformation prayer does. That's why you need your students to be influenced by godly men and women. Because you know what? There is no perfect parent and that includes the one on this stage. We all damage our children some way and wound them in some way and they believe some distorted lies as truths. And only God's spirit can change it. You see what I'm saying? God created us. God knows how we function best. And God determines right and wrong. Not even the Supreme Court. Certainly not our culture. Jesus is truth. And only by following his word can we gain freedom from ourselves. You know, this, it sounds so good. Oh, just follow your heart. You better not follow your heart. My, you know, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? You better not trust your heart. 
You better trust God's word. You better follow God's spirit. If you know Jesus by faith, you possess the Holy Spirit and he gives insight into human nature and the effects of sin and shows us the selfishness in our lives. He's the standard, I'm not. My perspective's not perfect. I'm skewed. First, First Corinthians 2 says, but the spiritual man has insight into everything and that bothers and baffles the man of this world who can't understand him at all. How could he? For certainly he has never been one to know the Lord's thoughts or to discuss them with him or to move the hands of God by prayer. But strange as it seems, we Christians actually do have within us a portion of the very thoughts and mind of Christ. If you know how to live rightfully, it's because of the mind of Christ within you. As the light of the world you do have truth to share, godly advice to give to people who are living in ignorance, confused by the circumstances of their lives. Colossians 3.16 says, let the words of Christ and all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise and use his words to teach and counsel each other. But do it meekly, humbly, seeking to help, not harm. So here's the question. How salty are you? How brilliant is your light? Stop minding your own business. Start exercising Christ-like influence. There'll be counselors here to counsel with you, to pray for you, to anoint you with oil for healing. There'll also be at the care connection room. Father, please help us to be salty and bright so we might influence people not toward us but toward toward you that they could see the beautiful works we do and glorify your name in Christ's name we pray amen thank you for coming here at Brookwood Church our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you experience transformed life so does your life influence others to see God If you have questions about this week's message, we encourage you to download our weekly message guide. You can download it from our website, brookwoodchurch.org forward slash messages, or you can find it on our Brookwood Church app. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.